Well, thank you to the Capabo small group for your acting skills uh, in that. And um, yeah, just to echo that, we, there's I think only a seven or eight boxes left that have not been taken. So the call is not so much to take them out. Uh, the call now is bring them back in. Um, and, and you know, really, typically, um, sometimes the percentages of return rates are not great year to year. So this year. We, uh, in faith, just took as many boxes, more than we've ever taken in the past. We had 100 come to grace. Um, only eight are left. But again, let's, let's go for a 100% conversion rate and get those back. Um, because every box is a family that is fed at Thanksgiving. I mean, that's just incentive enough for us um, and for us to be able to play a part and feeding 100 families through uh, Grace Church is just a great thing to be um, a part of. So uh, two weeks left, you can bring them back. If you want to bring them back throughout the week, you can. Um, and if, um, for whatever reason, if it's not office hours, you can leave them, leave them outside the front door and we'll uh, get it. Just a couple other items that is kind of hot off the press just from the last couple of days that want to just announce amongst our faith family um, on kind of both sides of the spectrum. So um, on the one end, um, uh, Annette Genovese is a woman, she was coming up here playing the box, I don't know what else to call that, it's a box, um, and it sounds really good, and uh, she has been coming since the summer, but um, yesterday, uh, Annette's mother passed away, and uh, just praise God that you're still just here wanting to worship with your faith family in the midst of that. Her, her mom was 100 years old, and um, uh, so just want to uh, celebrate that and mourn with her at the same time. Um, secondly, if you have been at Grace Church for uh, probably 10 to 15 years or longer, you will recognize this name. But um, Pearl Francis uh, was a dear member of Grace, longtime member. Uh, as a kid, I always remember she sat right there every single week. Um, Pearl passed away um, recently. She was in her 80s down with her uh, daughter in Texas, and so we got a call from them uh, to let us know. So I know there's several of you that uh, would want to hear that, um, and uh, really just part of what we're doing at Grace is to honor um, a really long line of faithful brothers and sisters that have come before us, that have been links in the chain, that now we can get to play our part so that generations from now you have others that can look back and be thankful for uh, just the work of faithful brothers and sisters that have played a part at Grace Church um, over the years. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, um, yesterday, uh, Tim and Kristen Rudd gave birth uh, to their a baby boy. A baby is in the, in the mix, wants to celebrate that as well. Uh, yesterday, down, right down the road at Valley. So uh, uh, Carson James Rudd, I believe, is the, is the uh, name there. Uh, so that is hot off the presses. And um, really, you know, later in the service, we're, I think we're going to close with blessed be your name. And really, uh, the, the real marquee line in that out of the book of Job is uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so even within our faith family, to see in one day uh, somebody pass and then somebody be born and just to see how uh, that's just true. And the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. Well, with that said, would you please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 785 in a uh, pew Bible uh, that you can feel free to open and follow along. Um, last week we began this six-week series that we were walking through the book of Habakkuk verse by verse. And so uh, just up front this morning, I, I just have to kind of lay down, uh, this morning's going to be a little bit difficult. Uh, this will be a day where we will open the word and encounter an aspect of God that is just not talked about that often, that just doesn't fetch a whole lot of amens, right, or a whole lot of views on social media and in the world's eyes as well, in some cases the church's eyes, just becomes flat out unpopular. 
And so at the end of the day, this is an opportunity, like it is every single Sunday, to um, open up God's word as a church family, to be exposed to its truth, to let it expand our minds, and Lord willing, grow us in faith in an almighty God, and then lay that down on top of our lives. Um, so we're going to do that today, like we do every week, just a little, um, just word up front. This morning might be a little more difficult. It just might be a little bit more different today. So um, what we have found, I think what we will continue to find, is that the book of Habakkuk is um, pound for pound one of the weightiest books in the Bible. And so I was just kind of thinking about it the past week. I mean, the book of Habakkuk will take us 15 minutes to read straight through if we were to read straight through. It's going to take us six weeks to preach through, and yet the content of the book of Habakkuk takes a lifetime to truly grasp and understand. Okay, 15 minutes to read, six weeks to preach, a lifetime to really grasp and understand and wrestle with. And um, Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And it's this kind of unique book in that it is simply a back and forth dialogue uh, between this desperate prophet and then a sovereign God who hears and responds. And so uh, I'm not going to retrace the whole historical background again like I did last week to kind of set up the book and, and just explain why has this dialogue begun this way because Habakkuk came out hot. Uh, but if you missed last week and you would like to hear that, uh, you can find that sermon online or through our church app. Um, but in short... Habakkuk's on fire right out of the gate. He is delirious in this surge of questions toward God, really wondering why God is tolerating the wickedness of Judah, uh, God's chosen people. It is just killing Habakkuk that God's people have turned from him, that they're caught up in all kinds of idolatry, that they don't even seem to care, that they have no regard for justice or the limit of their evil. They think they can just coast and know nothing will ever happen to them. And from the top down, he's just going to God, like, why are you putting up with this? And the answer we will see from God this morning is not only going to tell us his response to Habakkuk's plea, but more importantly for us, and more significantly, this morning is going to tell us much about God, about who he is. And with that, uh, we will now see God's response. Um, We're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 5, and we're actually just going to start with one verse. Um, So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, this is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So we need to stop right there because there's a couple just really important things we learn about God just from that one verse. Um, And the reason why this passage is so important is because it forces us to see God for how he reveals himself. As opposed to just seeing him as we want to see him, right? So um, first thing we learn about God just from that one verse, God hears and responds Uh, This is really an overarching point, in some ways an overarching theme of the entire series, of the entire book, that God is a personal God. Okay, so the prophet has poured his heart out. He wants to know, how long, O Lord? 
Why do you just seem absent right now? Where is this all going? Where is this all heading? And in line with what we see over and over and over again in the scripture is that God hears the cries of his people. And that is such a simple truth. So simple that my guess is the majority of us hear that and we just go, yeah, of course he does. Uh, of, of course he hears us. I, we've always known that. We've always seen that. And, and if, if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, there can just be this sense of entitlement that starts to rise. Where we see ourselves bigger and more important than we are. Like, yeah, of course the God of the universe should um, respond to us. Um, but listen, this truth, just this verse should richly encourage us that this is true. Okay, so people with not church background who have never really seen God as a personal God, this is a little bit shocking. This is a little bit difficult to understand. And yet it should be encouraging for all of us that God leans in to hear and then respond to his children. He's not a God who is removed from his creation. He's not uninvolved. He is intimately aware and he's in, he is God in the midst of it all. He cares about the so-called little things. The, the, the details, not, not just actions of what's happened, but motivations behind the actions. And what's telling about this is that God does not just respond to people who are giving him praises. He's not just God that's going, yes, just praise me and I'll respond to those who praise me. But we see here, he responds to criticism. Habakkuk is basically saying, God, I don't like the way you're doing things. I wish you would do things a little bit differently, and, and, and yet God is responding to the just raw emotional cries of his people. And so um, as I was just thinking through this, I, I think on a very micro level, we can resonate with being in this place where we have a choice to respond to both encouragement and applause as well as criticism that comes our way. So if you just think about your context in your life in areas that you receive encouragement and areas when you might receive criticism, you have a choice in that to respond in either way. So um, I'm finding just out of the gate in this whole ministry thing, all right, this is a position and this is a role that is very public in nature. And what happens is when it's very public in nature, you're open to people's opinions, Right? And so um, there are many times when I hear encouragement from someone for how God is um, just using this church, using me in their lives. And then there are times when I hear criticism, right, of, 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 of maybe I'm not going through things the right way. Maybe I'm not going about things the right way or, or, or maybe I'm doing that as kind of um, uh, harming the church at large. And so in those moments, it will be revealing to how I respond to each of those. Okay, so if I just kind of touted and responded to the encouragement and then any times criticism came, just kind of turned a blind eye to, to that, that would reveal a sense of pride at best and then a sense that would be destructive at worst if I just turned a blind eye to all criticism. And so listen, there have been, um, like I'm a couple years in, okay, like there's been a lot of constructive, good, helpful criticism that I have received and learned from. And then there has been a bit of kind of harsh, maybe unfair criticism that's borderline slander um, that I hear as well. And yet, I'm so grateful that early on I heard this bit from John Newton. He was a pastor in the uh, 1800s, maybe earlier, 1700s in England. And he had advice for leaders. 
So if even your leader in here, hear this. He said, even the most unfair criticisms likely have a kernel of truth in them. They probably have just even maybe just a little kernel of truth in them that you can repent of and learn from. And so I'd like personally, I just want to respond to all of it. I want to be open to all of it because there's probably even just a kernel of truth in any criticism that comes my way. So we can grasp um, that on a micro level of what we choose to hear and respond to, except here's the difference with God, okay? When God fields criticism for doing things the wrong way, there's never a kernel of truth in it. Like, it can be real, and it can be raw and authentic and emotional like it is from Habakkuk, but no man or woman will bring something before God that's going to make God go, oh, man, you know what? You're right. I just didn't think about it that way. My mind was over here. I wasn't processing that. Like, I regret that. I'm sorry, Habakkuk. And that's just never going to happen. And yet, he still responds. Not because he's apologetic, but because he loves his people. He wants them to find rest in him. We have a God who hears and responds. And so I just don't want to let that become so normal to us that it doesn't move us anymore. Because you you know why I know that this simple truth will move us if we grasp it? Um, Because in our culture, we freak out. We freak out when a really important kind of A-list celebrity or athlete carves out time to uh, surprise a normal person like me or you. Okay, so like Taylor Swift crashes a wedding and sings a song on the piano for the couple um, and the internet just breaks for 24 hours. Like we're all just freaking out like, oh my goodness, Taylor Swift just took time out of her day to just um, bless these humble little nobodies that nobody's ever heard of. How amazing is that? Like, I'm not against it. Like, I think in some sense it is pretty cool to see just, like, really uh, people that are high and lifted up to intentionally go and bless those that, uh, and, and kind of speak to the needs and the desires of, of, of nobodies. But, but, listen, now that wedding, like, isn't even more about them. Everyone's just thinking about Taylor Swift, but that's besides the point. Um, but we should, it should move us when we think about that our God is a personal God, and he hears, and he responds, and there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. We often just consider something unanswered when God says no, but in his infinite wisdom, he never lets a prayer go unanswered. He is never absent. He is never too busy. He's never too important to the point where he's just removed. He is in the thick of even the slightest details, and he never gets overwhelmed by it. Second truth, just from first five, is that God is in perfect control. So he hears and responds, and he's in perfect control. Again, another simple truth that I imagine like it's not sending shockwaves through your spine right now. All right? But again, the character of God can become so normal to us that we just fail to recognize it in our lives. So God just said to Habakkuk, Oh, I'm not idle. I'm not sitting back and biting my nails, nervous, wondering how this is all going to unfold. I'm not thinking I might have chosen the wrong people. He says, what I'm doing, you're going to be astounded by. God knows that what he is about to reveal is going to send shockwaves down Habakkuk's spine. He says, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not 
believe. That is a verse you probably have heard from the book of Habakkuk. You've probably seen that kind of plucked out and put somewhere that God says, I'm going to blow your mind and and you're not even going to believe what I'm going to do in your time. Because that verse gets used really often, really outside of context. So a lot of times you'll hear that verse and you'll see it kind of painted on a banner or part of this kind of building campaign. It's this contemporary promise where God is going to blow your minds with blessings and success. And it's supposed to get his people pumped up like you won't even, you won't even be able to imagine what I'm going to do. The only problem is it's in the book of Habakkuk. And in context, God is saying, as we'll see, um, I'm going to come decimate my people in judgment. Like, something tells me that's not going to get the new building built. <laughs> right? Like, like, something tells me that's not going to be all warm and fuzzy if we kind of put it in its context. Like, the, off- the offering plates are not going to be filled by that. But um, that's kind of a sidebar. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's just a pet peeve of mine. Like, keep your verses in context. Um, but this reality does affirm and assure that God has been and always will be in perfect control. He said, I'm not idle. I have been doing something, and you will see what I'm about to do. And and we need to just cling to the fact that God is in perfect control, even when, especially when, we can't fully understand what he's doing. And when our feet are flailing, like Habakkuk's were, and we are just out of our mind, confused and hurt, and we're just displaying a raw set of emotions, we yearn for a God who is in control. And it's in those moments that we realize we are not in control. And that's why we yearn for one who is, right? It is always sobering in the moments where we realize that we have far less control than we think we do over our lives. Okay, so you can work out, you can eat right, you can raise your kids the right way, you can always put your blinker on, and tragedy can still strike. And personally, I'm always reminded of this when, um, when we were out in Wisconsin visiting Rochelle's family. I'm always reminded of how little control I have because what happens is, is her parents are out in rural Wisconsin, and it's all just two-lane country roads, right? And they're really creative. It's like, here's Highway A, and then you turn, and now you're on Double A. And then down the road, there's W. Like, you couldn't give me something more than that. And then uh, Rochelle and I get in a debate. She says, you guys have Route 17, the worst word, like, road in the world. Um, and I usually lose that debate. Um, but here's what happens. These two-lane country roads, with the exception of the 13 seconds it takes you to drive through a downtown, um, it's all 55 to 65 miles an hour. Just two lanes. And so what happens is you are often driving past tractor trailers, or as they call them in Wisconsin, semis, right? And, or, or, or these big just pickup trucks because you're not pickup trucks because you're not a real man in Wisconsin unless you have a pickup truck with some lumber hanging out the back, all right? So what happens is you are just all the time just driving past these big trucks. And in those moments, I'm always reminded when I'm driving out there a couple times a year, um, all it would take is some guy to uh, try and text the girl he's trying to hang out with that night or reach for some Twizzlers that fell on the bottom of his truck to just swerve even just a few feet to his left and crush us. Like, I could be in perfect control of our vehicle. Like, 10 and 2, in my lane, eyes locked on the road, and we could still get crushed. And I'm just always reminded of that when I'm out there. And then I usually start to talk about it. Rochelle's like, seriously, Aaron, there's kids in the car. Like, I don't want to hear this again. 
We know, all right? It could end any minute. Like, you don't need to say it literally every single time. Um, But it's a sobering reminder that I am in far less control than I think I am. And the veil that gets just put over our eyes is that nowadays with technology, with the latest diet, with an improved self-confidence that we can control our own destinies. And it's a smokescreen. There's only one being in this universe who's in perfect control, and it's not us. It's the one who made us. It's the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who owns it all, the Alpha and the Omega, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He is in control. So you might say, well, so far this isn't that difficult, right? But now the text gets a little bit difficult. Um, We are generally good with the fact that God hears and he responds, and we affirm that he is in control. uh, But now this gets a little uncomfortable. Let's go. Habakkuk chapter 1. Verses 6 through 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Third, God is the sovereign judge. Okay, so recap. God goes, uh, Habakkuk goes, God, where are you? Why are you idle? How can you just sit back and watch all of this? And God responds, oh, I'm not idle. I have been and am raising up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, to come do work on Judah. This hasty, bitter nation that is sweeping through kingdoms and armies, laughing at the defenses they put up, brutal in all of their tactics. They move so fast, their horses seem like leopards. They soar like eagles, and they ravage enemies like wolves, and they just seek violence. So Habakkuk, you're crying out because Judah exudes violence and Judah thinks they are above justice. I'm about to give them a dose of their own medicine and show them real violence by sending an army that is even more so seemingly above justice. Habakkuk, it's going down. You just wait. And this, as we will see in a moment, this will elicit an even stronger response of confusion from Habakkuk. Because I want us to be clear. I don't want to gloss over it. What did we just read? God in his own words said he is raising up and using an evil, wicked, aggressive army to come exert discipline on his people for their sin. This isn't an illusion. 
It's not just some big hasty threat that won't come to fruition. It's not a uh, metaphor, okay? It is a prophetic word that would come to fruition in 586 BC, roughly 20 years after this is written, when King Nebuchadnezzar would come from the east with the Chaldean army, ransack Jerusalem, pillage the temple, and bring God's people into exile. And it is here where Habakkuk and we need to wrestle with a sovereign, just God who exerts justice and judgment. And it's here where we ought to just sit and recognize this is wildly unpopular. Okay, so if you were to go downtown Ridgewood after church and and find 100 Christians... Or people that would call themselves Christians say, hey, just start talking to me about God. Like, what do you love about God? Um, The vast majority, if any, would not even mention justice or wrath. Like, it just simply rubs us the wrong way. It goes against our conditioned notions of what we think God should be like and what we think he should do in any given situation. And so when it comes to justice, when it comes to a God who is completely just in judging everything and everyone, when it comes to even uh, going a step further to the realm of divine punishment and the reality of hell, we don't want to hear it. And so we ignore it. Or we just throw it away altogether. And, and here's the, like, just the real irony in our culture is that as a people, we love justice. Like we demand justice when people break the law. We demand that judges do their jobs of putting people away. And we want closure, that people will get what they deserve, and we will protest when justice is not given. A lot of times, rightfully so. We've been seeing it all over the country in recent years. Sometimes maybe not as rightfully so, but definitely times where protest, a lack of justice, is real and justified. And and further, here's what we know if we really just to distill this down and think about it. Um, When we think about justice, if we were to take it away, you also take away love. It's only when you love something so much or someone so much that the possibility of justice and judgment becomes even possible. Okay, so let me put this in a context where I I hope we can much easily understand. If I were to walk into my son's toy room, he's three years old and find him scribbling all over the walls, just recklessly, every color he could find, like three crayons in one hand, just doing max damage. If I were just to walk in and go, oh man, ooh, and just pat him on the head and walk out, and I were to fail in that moment to even correct him, to talk to him, to discipline him in any way, and then just never bring it up again, that is not a sign that I love him. Listen, it's a sign that I hate him if I were to do that. A failure to discipline in situations that call for it would be a sign of hatred, not love. A lack of justice in situations that requires it would be hatred, not love, because in the long run, it would set him up for failure if he was never disciplined. And in that moment, my love for him will lead me to correct, lead me to discipline, lead me to speak out in such a way that is for his good. Um, This is why the author of Hebrews tells a persecuted church that is just under it, and he says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. If there is no judgment, if there is no discipline, even amongst God's people, we should be way more afraid of that than when it actually happens. And you know why discipline from God, as well as just overall judgment and even the existence of hell and God's right to be just, you know why that's just open for so much debate today? You want to know why that's getting just increasingly rejected, not just outside the church, but inside the church, especially amongst younger generations? Listen, let me tell you why. It's simple. People don't like it. And more and more, we are in a world where the growing mentality is, if we don't like something, we can do without it. And we could shape our beliefs based upon what we like and leave what we don't. And so we're just in a really strange day today when it comes to belief systems. Uh, and, and just how they develop amongst people. It, it is well documented that less and less people are clinging to and claiming uh, just Christian faith or holding to biblical truth. The most recent real large study is that about 35% of millennials and down claim they have no religion. And I suspect that will just keep growing with each up-and-coming generation. And those percentages are so far ahead of anything else that was even 10, 15, 20 years ago, let alone a couple hundred years ago. But, but here's the really interesting thing about all of that, is that there's not significant growth in atheism either. Okay, so people are not saying that they're just, they're just disavowing God altogether. They're just disavowing a belief in God or higher powers or religions. They just don't claim to a Christian God. They don't claim to a certain religion. They don't want convictions or hard lines as laid out in the Bible or elsewhere. So they are very much spiritual. Millennials are very much spiritual, but rather than submitting to orthodox doctrines, they are shaping God and the spiritual realm to submit to them and what they want to be true. And that's becoming the just growing ethic that that's acceptable and right. Okay, so let me put it this way. Um, picture a buffet line. If you go to a buffet, maybe after you're going to a brunch right after this, right? You get to a buffet and people will go down the line and they'll see all these options. And as they go, they will um, put some things on their plate that they want. And then they'll go on. If there's something they don't want, they won't put it on their plate. And they'll get to the end of the buffet line. And so you'll go to a table where everybody went through and every single person will have a slightly different plate. They came from the same buffet, but it's different plates, right? That's true of any buffet line you've been at. And that is all good and awesome when you're talking about food. But it becomes dangerous when what we're talking about is what you believe and base your whole life upon. And so there's a conviction today. We can just all go down the buffet line. We can take the beliefs we like. We can pass over the ones we don't. We'll all end up with a slightly different plate, and that is good, and that is right. We should celebrate that. Like, you can't tell me to take from that buffet line any more than I can tell you. That would be intolerant. That would be unloving. It's better for me to just choose my beliefs based upon my interests and my experience and what I think is good and right, and, and then you can do that for you, and we'll just agree to disagree. And so here's what happens. Here, here's how that plays out within even the Bible, is that someone goes through the line, 
They say, I like the idea of a creator who made all things. I like the idea of restoration and a day coming when all things will be, be new and that will last for all of eternity. But I don't like that there's only one way to heaven. And so I'm going to pass over that. And increasingly, I don't like this sexuality ethic over here where God decides what is right. And so I'm going to let that go untouched. And I definitely don't like hell or final judgment except for the ones that I think should go to hell. Like the really bad people. So I'm just going to have one scoop of that. And I love serving your neighbor because that makes me feel good. I'll have some of that. But I don't like the part about church and having to submit to authority. So I'll pass over that and just podcast. And oh look, I have one spot left on my plate. How about I just throw in a God who is not overly involved in the details of my life, but just wants me to be happy. I got my plate. And at the end of the day, even in the midst of times where there's confusion, where like Habakkuk, we have to just say, if we're honest, what is going on? The question remains, will we allow God to be God? As revealed in his terms, or will we shape God to be what we want based on our terms? And that's a decision we all need to make. And that's a decision that's becoming more and more blurred. And that is a decision that our students and our kids and kids worship as they're growing up to the middle school and to high school and to college that they are being bombarded with of, hey, just go grab your plate and don't talk about what you're getting. And so church, as we open the word, let's let God be God. And let's not fall into this contemporary postmodern trap of fooling ourselves into thinking that we can just shape God based on what we like, like he's Plato. So let's finish up this passage by seeing Habakkuk's response to this. Let's read verses 12 through the first verse of chapter 2. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with the hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk cries out to God, why are you not exerting justice on your people? Why are you idle towards their wickedness? God just claps back and goes, oh, I'm not idle. I'm sending the, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And now Habakkuk, shocked, goes, what? You're sending who? Them? That evil nation? Why are you using them? Why are you even associated with them? Why are you going to oddly look over their evil to reprove us who are just slightly less evil? 
His second complaint becomes more desperate than the first, even though he pivoted as to what was causing it. He's still wrestling through God's sovereign purposes. And where he started by calling for justice against Judah, now he's calling for a different method. And it's important to see this. It's important to see that Habakkuk is not questioning God's judgment. It's what he called for. But rather, he is questioning the means of God's judgment. And like, I read this, and I'm like, to be honest, I kind of understand his confusion. I don't really know what to do with that. I understand his fear. But you see in his response that his theology is sound. He's almost saying this to himself. He starts, God, you are from everlasting. God, you are holy. God, you are pure and you are righteous. Um, So how can you sovereignly use an evil nation to carry out your purposes? Here's what Habakkuk's struggling with. Something that we do far more than maybe we might realize. Habakkuk is struggling to reconcile the character of God with the work of God. He knows the character of God. He's just repeating it out, but he just can't figure out his work and his timing and his means. And I think that happens to us more than we realize where something happens in our life where we step back and go, God, I know who you are. I, I know this is, I know you're not out of control. Uh, I know this is how you've revealed yourself, but I just don't understand it here right now. It's like the man in Mark who says to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. Habakkuk is displaying an emotional response of confusion, but listen, that is rooted in faith. And this is crucial. Confusion rooted in faith. So I'm just going to touch on this briefly because next week Pastor Jeff will preach the first few verses of chapter 2 and he will spend all of his time fleshing out this point about the need and response of faith in the unknown. Um, but just a couple of things from, we just saw from Habakkuk that kind of show faith even in the midst of just delirious doubt. First is the first verse of chapter 2, how it ended. He said, I will wait for my response. I will stand at this watchtower and see what the Lord has to say. Um, Some people look at that and go, that is a prideful response by Habakkuk, that he's demanding a response. But personally, I see it as one that is done in faith. That he says, I'm not bailing. I'm not leaving. I'm not seeing this and hearing this and going, all right, God, you failed me. I'm out. You aren't, really aren't that good. You've, you've been exposed in this. I'm moving on to something else. Something else will make me happier than you. But on the contrary, he is staying and he is digging deeper into God. The holy God who works all things out for good, who is faithful to his promises, who is inherently good. He says, I will see this through because I know God will not leave me. He will come out on top, so I'm digging deeper in. I'm not bailing out. And how applicable is that for some of us in here who are in a place in life where we are at this crossroads and we're going, I'm either going deeper in or I'm bailing out. And the plea from Habakkuk is, stay at your watchtower. 
expect that God will respond, expect that God will reveal himself to be good even in the midst of confusion. This is just a great word picture for us where we will say, God will come through. And for the true child of God, listen, where else are we going to go? Where else do you want to go? Like life is here, deliverance is here. I'm going to wait and I'm going to trust. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, we'll have it on the screen, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And then lastly, a slightly more disguised uh, display of faith, uh, but I think even more powerful, is seen in a single phrase, and it's in verse 12. And the phrase is, We shall not die. If you read that again, it doesn't, that line doesn't really seem to fit with all the lines around it. Because he starts by saying, Oh Lord, you are my God, my Holy One. After that phrase, he says, Oh Lord, you have ordained judgment. And there's this phrase kind of in the middle of there that just says, We will not die. And in the midst of the unknown of Habakkuk's shock, I think he's just recounting what he does know. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of what he doesn't know, he needs to cling to what he does know. He says, God is God. He is holy. He ordains all things. And in the midst of that, I think this is more to say to himself than it is to say to God. He says, and we will not die. It's evidence of Habakkuk clinging to God's promise in the midst of this tidal wave of emotion and doubt. Because he knows God has made a covenant with his people. That as a nation, they will never be wiped completely from the earth. That they will never be fully destroyed, for he will be with them. And so he's just muttering to himself. I I almost picture him doing it repeatedly, like, we shall not die. We shall not die. I'm going to cling to this, and even though a brutal, hasty nation is coming to discipline us, we shall not die. We will persevere, and God will be faithful to his promise. So here's how we close this morning. Um, Church, on this side of Jesus Christ, we too can cling to the promise of God. The promise that he will deliver. That was the promise Habakkuk was clinging to, that that was coming, it was coming. And you know what our promise is? Our promise that we cling to is that he has delivered. He has delivered by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he who began a good work in us will be faithful to see it through. And so when questions abound, and they will. When the pain runs deep, and it will. When panic starts to set in and the walls start to close, we, as God's people, can say along with Habakkuk, we shall not die. He has delivered. And he will deliver again in the future and over and over and over again. And so to bring this sermon full circle, um, here's the truth we rest in. God saves and God delivers, not despite the fact that he also exerts justice and judgment. But listen, the cross of Jesus Christ is a vivid display for all to see that God delivers and saves through judgment. It is because God is just that we may be reconciled and restored despite our rebellion. God saves sinners because he put judgment onto his son that was due us.
That's where the gospel just proclaims power. That's where it stirs. Not that we're good enough, not that we figured it out, but he was good enough and his death satisfied the wrath of God and his resurrection proved that he was the son of God. And one day, every single person in the world, past, present, and future, will be judged in finality and every sin will be paid for either through eternal punishment in hell or through the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why, as a people, we plea and proclaim to put your faith in him. Because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. And no one gets to the Father except through the Son. This is not a buffet line. And my plea is to not mistake God's patience for acceptance. God is patient. And he is slow to anger. But don't don't let that deceive you into thinking he's accepted you until you believe in his son. All sin will be dealt with and there will be no secrets on that final day. The return of Christ will be either the most joyful or the most terrifying day in the history of the world. And it all depends on who do we say he is. Let it be Savior. Let it be King. Let it be Lord for his glory and for your eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your heart, your word completely and sufficiently stirs our hearts. Father, I pray for those in here who needed to be affirmed of who you are, of your work in the world, affirmed that your son is the way, the truth, and the life, that that would give courage to us to stand against the tidal wave of cultural relativism that we're living in. And Father, for those in here who have not yet trusted in you, I pray that this word would go out. I pray that it would bear fruit. I pray that people would be uh, convicted and at the same time affirmed and restored by your grace. It's not about us, Lord. It's about you, what you have done, Lord. Give us faith. Give, it, give us faith to the full and let your name be glorified in it. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.